Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Board of Trustees meeting for Alameda Health System. <clears throat> Rana, can we do a roll call? Yes, uh, Trustee Avalada. Here. Trustee Peterson. Here. Trustee Energy. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Shequin. Here. Trustee DeVries. Here. Trustee Jensen. Thank you. Thanks for bearing with me. I'm having some video challenges, so I'm going to do audio until I can try to multitask and get on another device. Um, but in the meantime, um, thanks everyone for being here. We are going to be spending a little time together, trustees, <laughs> for this evening and then tomorrow for our uh, retreat. Um, so I know that we'll be um, taking on some big challenges um, upcoming, not least of which is the um, trend that we're seeing right now here in Alameda County with respect to COVID. Um, we had our worst day ever, I guess, on the last recorded day, which was, I believe, on the 21st in terms of hospitalizations. And the day before that was uh, the worst day um, up until that point as well. So um concerning uh, trajectory that we're on and so i think we're all um uh heading into that uh understanding that we're on an upslope and that in some ways we spent a lot of time preparing for this to happen a few months ago didn't quite do that um so hopefully all that time has prepared us um and hopefully we are still um hopefully we are taking good care of ourselves because i think um we've been sort of running non-stop now for the past several months and all of the um really brave and incredible folks that are working on our front lines have been running non-stop for several months now as we head into this most difficult period and so i keep feeling like uh we can't burn out now <laughs> and at the same time wanting to make sure we're all looking out for each other um, and all taking care of each other and all doing self-care. Um, and so so with that in mind and, and remembering that we were we were here at, until after midnight last uh, at our last meeting and we've got a, a marathon day ahead of us tomorrow, I'm gonna do my best to keep us kind of on time and hopefully not have to spill into Saturday because I know that the, that uh, that is precious time for us as well um, and that we all need time to recharge. So on that note, um, I will turn it over to Devecchio for the CEO report. Uh, Trustee Abelotta, there is one uh, public comment, not agenda item. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Hearn. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Gene Hearn. I will hopefully keep this brief. I'm speaking to you today as a member of the medical staff, a provider of emergency services during COVID-19, but also the past chief of staff and a member of the newly formed EBMG board. I refer briefly to Dr. Ballard's comment at the last meeting about the erosion of trust between administration and providers. But I see a way forward. I also speak today about hope for a new organization I'm excited to be a member of, uh, this new organization of providers. I know that this is a dedicated group with literally over a thousand um, and perhaps thousands of hours uh, of years of collective service to Highland. Many in my department of emergency medicine have over 30 years here and I have been here for 24 years. So our institutional memory is vast. We look forward to establishing a dedicated, unified and engaged group focusing on caring for our diverse population. We hope to establish a diverse board and group of officers and committees to further those goals. We have a list of volunteers from various specialties and diverse backgrounds who are anxious and excited to get to work for this new organization. 
we look forward to those items being on the board agenda soon for us to implement and move forward. As you know, due to the Brown Act, if items are not on the agenda, we cannot discuss them. We look forward and hope for a new era of engagement and cooperation, integrity and transparency. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Hearn. Other public speakers? All right, Del Vecchio, CEO report. Good evening, uh, trustees and uh, uh, guests. I uh, appreciate everybody being here uh, for this month's uh, full board meeting. And also, I'm looking forward to our retreat tomorrow. Uh, and in recognition of your great guidance or an admonition about uh, uh, being uh, efficient with our time so that we can um, balance our work and our, our uh, breaks, our rest, I will um, try to make my remarks uh, brief. Um, the bulk of what I want to say, obviously, I think is important for me to share uh, what's going on from our vantage point with respect to everyday life here. And so much of that is uh, obviously wrapped around uh, the experience of the pandemic. So as you many of you know, um, uh, in addition to your comments about uh, our, our highest days of hospitalizations uh, in terms of cases uh, around the nation uh, where we're seeing, you know, just uh, mass um, uh, uncontrolled uh, uh, explosion of the pandemic. Uh, California, I think yesterday, uh, officially topped the, uh, the country as the state with the most positive cases, uh, and those are statewide. Uh, so many are uh, in Southern California, but it's also growing, as you mentioned, in the, in the Bay Area. Um, and many of you know that beginning this month, so last time we were together, just after that, uh, we had a significant outbreak at San Quentin here in our region. Um, and uh, we just discussed this a little bit in QPSC. We were a, a significant part of the response effort across our system. We're supporting uh, the, care, uh, the acute care needs of that population as they uh, uh, traversed uh, um, the healthcare delivery system in the Bay Area. Um, we are uh, fortunate that in most of those cases, actually uh, we were able to successfully uh, care for people and return them back to uh, facilities and uh, I think right now we're down to three uh, uh, one of which is actually no longer um, uh, positive uh, so uh, two, two who are positive that we're caring for. really want to thank all of our clinicians, our nursing staff, our respiratory therapists, our non-clinical providers for providing excellent care to that population as they have with the rest of our uh, the population we serve. Um, but still, uh, you know, we experienced a big explosion at the beginning of the month where our numbers nearly uh, doubled. Uh, we went from kind of an average of, of lower uh, or double um, high teens to, uh, to lower 20s to uh, just above 45 patients in almost uh, 24-hour period. So quite significant growth. Uh, never at a point where we, we exceeded or uh, got to a, a capacity level for us that surged, but obviously still a significant growth. And now that those numbers from San Quentin are, are down, uh, we're still seeing that we're at a, about a 50% increase from where we were tracking for a couple of weeks uh, um, quite sustainably when uh, the shelter-in-place restrictions were, were in order. So we're still roughly about 35 patients or so, I think, as of uh, today even. Uh, so we, it, it, I think it goes uh, without saying we have to continue to be vigilant, both within our system, but also within our community. Uh, you've seen numbers that we've shared throughout the organization that, you know, the number of positives that we've had amongst our workforce have, have, have grown, too, during this time period. Fortunately, we are still at a point where through, you know, the, the testing that, that we've been able to expand within the organization and, and obviously uh, efforts in the community, we're still at a level of about 38 of our employees have tested positive over this period of time. 
time. That 38 represents, as you can uh, quick uh, math do, less than 1% of our uh, total workforce. Um, um, so we, we are really uh, proud of and uh, appreciative of our staff for taking um, uh, very taking this very seriously and deploying all of the best practices uh, that we are prescribed uh, and that they are honoring in terms of uh, masking, hand hygiene, social distancing where feasible, and really just being very careful both in their their uh, professional lives and walks as well as their personal uh, lives. And so uh, we will continue to support our, our workforce and we hope that uh, as you said, Trustee Avalada, you know, we can, we can stay well, but we can also stay um, uh, vigilant so that we can support our community in what looks to be, and we've been mindful of this, as a slowly expanding and uh, hopefully not an exponentially growing uh, experience that we're seeing in terms of positives and hospitalizations in our area. Uh, just to make sure the board uh, uh, knows and appreciates that we've had a restoration oversight committee, which is sort of a... a um, a hybrid of our uh, incident command center. We scaled back uh, when we got to a level of stabilization or stability, I should say. Um, that group has been meeting consistently. We meet we try to meet three times a week. Sometimes we do two because of uh, scheduling challenges, but uh, fairly consistently three times a week where we are monitoring uh, what's happening in our community. We're monitoring what's happening in our organization, our preparedness, uh, the number of hospitalizations we have, ICU utilization, ventilator utilization, and a host of other uh, factors. Uh, we're balancing all of that while at the same time restoring services, as we've talked about a lot in this meeting. I'm very pleased and proud of our partnership with a lot of our uh, providers, particularly those uh, in interventional areas like our perioperative areas, our uh, GI clinics, our dental services, our pulmonary function services, our diagnostic services, where we've been able to uh, restore some degree Degree of elective services in support of our uh, patient, uh, our community who needs this care and has uh, had to um, uh, endure delays while we try to be uh, um, prepared for and um, um, able to support uh, the uh, pandemic in our community. Recent challenges, I think it's important that you're aware of. Uh, we had experienced a period where surgical gowns was a challenge and uh, through a lot of uh, create, uh, collective effort and creativity, largely through our supply chain and our purchasing team uh, and the leadership there, we were able to more than surmount that. Our dashboard now shows that we are uh, really well equipped uh, in terms of gowns uh, and our ability to continue to support uh, safety practices there. Uh, N95 mask in particular, we went through a spell and uh, while we're much better, we're still, uh, we are, we're ready for uh, current operations and any sort of slight increase in services, surge capacity. If we get there, uh, we're in, we're still in a bit of a precarious spot. So we continue to do work there. Most recently, testing actually and availability of testing uh, kits, supplies and reagents uh, was a big barrier for us and a big um, a scary period for us on Monday because uh, both with the increase in testing that we're doing using all of our different uh, resources internally and externally, uh, we were at a in a situation uh, this past Monday where our internal capacity was quite low. Uh, I'll uh, tell you that there was a great uh, leadership from our medical staff and uh, particularly our lab leadership and Dr. Turner Bene as the um, uh, Associate Chief Medical Officer really guiding us to think about how we might uh, uh, scale back if we needed to. Um, but with our lab leadership, um, uh, both the administrative director and the um, 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 
medical director, we were able to get some additional supplies and uh, we haven't had to pull that trigger yet, but we, we're staying constantly uh, vigilant about that. Um, we were mentioned earlier in QPSC, we're collaborating, uh, I think, quite closely and well with the county in a number of respects and looking to expand that. Uh, that includes uh, testing expansion. And, and again, I really want to shout out uh, Dr. Tornabene and Dr. Gupta and other leaders who are really helping to expand our capacity there. Uh, uh, hotel support and uh, uh, Janet McKinnis and others are really uh, stepping up and trying to help uh, there to support uh, supply nursing support, but also uh, other uh, support from our ID leaders as well as our infection prevention leaders. And contact tracing, which is a little bit slower in terms of our engagement with it, uh, but by design in terms of focusing on testing with the county. So we're continuing to, to uh, uh, look at that and prepare for responding to an RFP when that comes out. Uh, we continue to do very robust communications. We send out, again, we try to do three times a week, sometimes it's twice, but three times a week communications where we're reminding people of certain practices, we're keeping people apprised of things that are happening across the organization in our community. We do weekly Zoom calls where I am joined with a lot of our clinical uh, and operational leaders to talk about uh, these things. Uh, we are averaging, I think, somewhere around three to 400 um, 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 participants or callers, uh, or staff members each week on those calls and um, uh, there's a host of uh, local departmental and uh, unit-based huddles and meetings that continue as well. So all of that, as I, you can tell, is quite a lot. We're trying to monitor and be careful about everything. Um, I want to just uh, sort of wrap up. There's a couple of other things, but I'll save them for tomorrow. But uh, say in this case, um, uh, what we are hearing a lot from our staff is, you know, a lot of fatigue. People uh, are a little bit uh, I think dejected uh, to see you know all of that work that we put in across our area to stabilize, flatten the curve, to really support our community, uh, seeming to suggest that you know it was short-lived and we're we're experiencing what we were all working to avoid. Uh, I think we do remain ready, but we do have to be mindful of, uh, of as you said, trust. You have a lot of taking care of one each another and uh, just being uh, reassuring to people that you know we're here, we're supporting each other, we're all in this together, and. Uh, uh, and the only way we'll get through this is together. So appreciate the uh, uh, recognition of that. Uh, uh, but really, I want to just end by thanking all of the, the uh, staff and the leaders here who are just doing an outstanding job at being uh, here and ready to support this community, uh, as they always are, but especially during this time. I will. Uh, I only have one housekeeping thing. Uh, item G, I think it's G five uh, for the trustees in the or in the packet is a new thing that you've asked for that we've worked with the executive committee to produce, and it's a uh, issue tracking log. And we've identified some things uh, beginning with the last board meeting uh, where we're uh, endeavoring to show you uh, that there's follow up on some of the things that uh, we are hearing about uh, either in public comment or in the course of the meeting, uh, where we will be um, uh, working to use this tool uh, over time to just keep you apprised of what's happening there and how we're um, um, providing updates or closing out matters as they are brought to your attention. So uh, we can discuss that when we get there and happy to take your feedback on it. And with that, I'll uh, close my, conclude my remarks. Thank you. Thank you, Bill Becchio. And I quickly, I'll just say, I, I realized after you started talking that I was not clear with what my we meant in terms of seeing some of our worst days. And I was really speaking to um, countywide and sort of what we're seeing in the bigger picture. But really, thank you for contextualizing that, which it sounds like, um, as we know, the, what we're seeing within um, AHS is, is reflective of that as well. Um, so thank you for that additional um, nuance, too, regarding um, uh, San Quentin. Any questions for Del Vecchio? 
All right, we're going out to the medical staff reports, Dr. Ballard. Thank you, Dr. Avaleta, trustees. Um, uh, our, our medical staff meeting this past month um, basically was a little truncated because we um, incorporated a, a now one-on-one, -on -one, well, I guess it's one-on-15 session with um, Del Vecchio, uh, which I think will help improve communication and hopefully trust across time. Uh, it, it was a spirited conversation. Uh, but I think at least it was a start. So that, that in my mind was a huge step in the right direction in terms of accomplishing one of my hopeful goals and a better working relationship between the med staff and the executive wing. I also um, had a conversation with um, some of the leaders who give reports and I asked one of the leaders, I said, you know, we see a lot of spreadsheets. Can you just bring me things you need? Can you bring the medical staff issues that we can help you with. And, and I got a very poignant uh, email prior to the day of MedExec and, and it was basically uh, an, an ask that the frontline workers in our hospital, the nurses, the, the residents, the doctors who are, you know, on the front lines, that they are able to be heard and that their request for help could be at least um, acknowledged whether we have the resources to follow through with it, it's a different issue but they they just needed to be heard and so I read this um, from the email that I received from this leader and she wrote um, tensions have been high with the staff out on leave and high acuity patients the moral distress and burnout is palpable we need to start having dialogues about these feelings all providers who are caring for COVID patients have the added PPE, which changes your entire routine. You are hot, it is hard to hear, your glasses are fogging up, you are motioning to others outside of the room like a game of charades. You worry about everywhere you touch, every place you step. We also may not know what is going on at home for each of us. Spouses and partners have lost their jobs. Kids have no childcare. Family members are sick. This pandemic for healthcare workers is at work and at home. Helping with moral distress and burnout needs to be a priority. We need to find a way to acknowledge this. And so I, I read this at the MedExec meeting last week, a week ago, yesterday. Since that time, um, I have uh, worked a little bit, and within the last week, I personally have asked 14 people to put on masks in this facility. I've watched employees stand within feet of their manager without a mask on and never be instructed to put one on nor be given one to wear. It took me asking that they mask up before anything happened. My team and I, and, and my team, for those of you who don't know, are first-year residents, second-year residents, all the way up to PGY7, which means postgraduate year seven, surgical chiefs. And there's a whole gaggle of them, and it's July, which means they're brand spanking new. So my team and I have been exposed to several patients in clinic this week alone who slipped through the screening process. They had clear signs and symptoms of COVID, later to test positive 
when we were able to send them downstairs. We do not wear N95s in our clinic. We are instructed not to. We were there with, with a ear loop surgical mask in a small room with a patient who refused to wear their mask half the time who later tested positive. When I brought this up with the leadership in the clinic, they were not even aware this had happened. There's also uh, exposures to our team from inpatients who have been in the hospital and, and at some point, even a week or so in, tested positive. When leaders from the surgical service tried to connect with the leaders of the COVID response um, for employee exposure, it took 72 hours for them to hear back. Understandably, because there's only two people covering the entire system for this task. This is typical. By 7 a.m. tomorrow morning, my weekly timesheet, my, your chief of staff's weekly timesheet, will have accrued 104 hours since last Friday morning. So self-care is kind of not really within my realm at this point. I don't say this to try to get you to understand on a human level what it means to be within the hospital 104 hours within any given week. And no, I don't have a vacation next week, nor the one after, nor the one after. What I, why I want you to know that is because it gives me a unique experience in this institution day and night. And I see a lot of stuff. It's one of the reasons that makes me a decent chief of staff because I know what the docs experience on, a, on any given hour of the day. We have a critical deficit in infrastructure in our system. We're making small strides at building infrastructure like the stuff that, that Janet McGinnis listed. There are grand improvements happening in small measures across the board. I would say we may be a little bit less than a quarter of the way toward, towards building any type of real infrastructure in our hospital. In order for us to have a stable, long-term quality delivery healthcare system, we have to have infrastructure. This infrastructure can't be built behind closed doors with post-it notes all over the walls. And those strategies are only successful when systems have infrastructure that already exists that just needs to be improved on. I truly believe in lean philosophy. I truly believe that it works, but you have to apply it to a system that has some sort of infrastructure that exists already. Ours does not. Teresa Cooper and Dr. Tornabene embody the, the idea of showing up as a leader. I've seen tangible change occur because those two people are present and are committed to rolling up their sleeves. The information that they get from being present informs their decisions and helps them affect meaningful change. I've had a lot of conversations in the last several weeks with leaders about the idea of governance and management being separate. And I think for Highland and AHS and all the hospitals connected with this system, at some point, many years from now, that might be possible. I have really great concerns 
that if governance and management are completely separate at this point without infrastructure, any, any benefits we've gained will be lost. <coughs> and um, that's basically what was conveyed and discussed um, across the board in the remaining aspects of our closed session. We weren't doing our usual work of credentialing and, and IPPC. So that concludes my report from the core system MEC. Thank you for that, Dr. Ballard. Um, sobering. Um, trustees, any questions for Dr. Ballard? Yeah, I, I have a question. I actually. Oh. <laughs> okay. Dr. Ballard, could you could you define infrastructure? It's such a broad word. Uh, sure, to... I, I would love to. Uh, you know, I think in in this in this setting, infrastructure is really basic in terms of of building processes that you have a system for audit and improvement across the board. Sometimes it's going to be once you do that and you have the processes for saying yes, we can do geographically based patient care and have rounding in certain parts of an acute care setting and it's more efficient and tested it, it works. And we're able to get teams together that can help with flow and get patients to the right parts of the system. Then, and you audit it, then maybe we are asking for new positions or, or new, you know, new support, you know, technical infrastructure. But I'm just talking about the actual building of programs, building of processes, because right. we don't have that right now. That makes sense. Like there should there should be processes within the clinics that are in existence for when somebody tests positive, and right now it's the the answer I got this week was why don't you know that four people out of this clinic tested positive and your entire staff was was exposed? They go oh well it's because the doctor that ordered it is supposed to let us know, and I said well the system exists that the person goes to fast track. You're, are you telling me a fast track doc is supposed to know to call the clinic now? That's broken. So, I mean, it's just a matter of having processes. And the thing that I admire so much about both Teresa Cooper and Dr. Tornabene is that they make processes and they test them and then they go back and they make sure everybody's okay with it and they see if it's working. I don't think they have the bandwidth to map it. That would be really nice. But, um, but yeah, it's just building processes. We we're not even close to building the actual, you know, positions and that sort of thing. Just building the process itself. We're not even there yet. They don't exist. It's kind of fly by the seat of your pants all the time. Wow. Dr. Bullard, is it the uh, command center something that if the command center had been in place, were would, is that something? And and again, remind me. I know that there were plans to put that in, or is it like at every unit and every, um, you know, other it's, level? It's so bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. And and I'm, and I I probably you know I probably am being now that I'm 88 89 hours into my week. I am probably being a little bit of a downer, not going out how great people's work is being done because people are doing amazing work. But we started so far back. You know, we started we started at a really negative number, and we've just now maybe crested zero in terms of, you know, getting better. Um, and 
it's like, yeah, we thought about all, you know, the people who have thought about the big things have thought about, oh, well, you know, the testing flow through the ER for people who come to the tent, we're getting a little bit more tight with that. But there's so many other parts of this. And our experience is so young in managing these kinds of things. I mean, you all know that I would love more than anything to spend half of my time with disaster medicine and making command center processes be better and everything. But this is, this is more of an institutional how we fix things across time. And, uh, and you know, and the COVID pandemic is a small piece of it. It's, it's everything from pre-op assessment and management through post-op, you know, and, and how we take a medicine patient in in the beginning and start working on their social work from the day one. You know, it's stuff like that. It's a workflow. It's, it's, it's standard work that needs to be created so that we can, you know, we can be more efficient and, and work smarter and not harder. That, that's the infrastructure I'm talking about. Professor Hernandez? Um, Dr. Ballard, I'm, I'm really sorry that uh, you're having to put in those kinds of hours and that you're having to report about uh, exposure uh, for our uh, staff. Um, I'm really frustrated right now because one of the things that we all know, uh, it goes back to Atul Gawande's checklist manifesto uh, produced in 19, what, 2015, something like that, right? Yeah, 2013. We, yeah, 2015. We, we know that a simple checklist can save lives. And what you're telling us today is that somehow there is no checklist for what to do when a COVID-19 patient, if I got this right, comes into a clinic and then needs to be taken over to be seen by other physicians, right, in the other part of the hospital system. So um, let's get this right. Uh, Del Vecchio, how does this get corrected? How does this get done? Tell us right now, if this kind of an issue is raised, what is the chain of command to address it? Well, first, uh, thank you for the question. Uh, this is news to me. Uh, so I would say the first way to, to do this would be if this is an ambulatory issue, we have ambulatory leaders who are more than capable of responding to this and could work with any leader who has a challenge here or a staff member who has a challenge here to put systems in place. And I would venture a guess that they would be more than willing to be responsive to this. Uh, so my question would be, do they know this uh, um, so that uh, they could actually be responsive to it? I would hope that they do. And so that when it comes to the board, you're hearing something that uh, people have had an opportunity to respond to and perhaps have not at that point, but not to learn it in this context. Uh, this is news to me. I am more than happy to follow up on it and I will uh, okay. follow up on it. Uh, but I've been in several conversations and have not heard this. So um, I will I will take it back and I will check with those leaders and I, I know they're more than capable of dealing with this. But I will also point out that again, we're in a situation across our organization and across our city where, where our area 
where this is it's in a community. We have taken steps, and the staff here have taken steps to um, protect each other and to protect the patients we serve, and our results seem to be bearing that out. So is it without challenge? No. Is it perfect? No. I would say we're doing auditing on a lot of things we put in place already, too, and we're seeing instances where uh, it's not 100%, but in human endeavor, it probably will not always be 100%. There's so much complexity in an organization of this nature and so many processes in place in an organization of this nature that it's expected that people can't keep everything front of mind or be 100% consistent all the time. That notwithstanding, our results seem to suggest that we're doing okay. So uh, I will uh, be glad to follow up with Dr. Ballard and anyone else uh, uh, who has a concern, but I think we have leaders who are more than capable beyond uh, the two who she's referenced, who I totally would agree with, uh, um, uh, who are more than capable and willing to help the situation. And then further, I would say, um, it's concerning to me if she or any other person is, is working over 100 hours in a week because I think that's a risky situation. So uh, I will follow up with Dr. Jamaluddin and the chair of surgery and try to figure out why it is that we would have our chief of staff um, uh, working over 100 hours in a, in a week. I think that's unsafe. And I'll be glad to follow up on it. Yes, uh, I, I'd like also to comment. Uh, I have addressed uh, the working hours of the surgeon with Dr. Victorino, and uh, you know I will follow up about the structure of leveraging the work and see why why our surgeons are working that long. Uh, more than that, I'm going to follow up also with UCSF to see what is the problem of uh, of having a schedule as such. So that's one problem. The second, uh, we have really instituted an escalation process and chain of command uh, about any issue. And I think our our leader have responded tremendously to this. Uh, you know, when when we get uh, when we had on the weekend uh, the issue with St. Quentin, you know, uh, everybody we were like talking to each other and trying to address uh, these issues. Now I'm uh, I'm again, you know, uh, hearing this for the first time, but we really have put very tight processes. What you talk about the daily management system and the lean, this is all built around having these processes and talking to each other about this and watching each other. So, um, you know, again, you know, uh, you might be seeing, Dr. Goulart might be seeing an aspect that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm missing or happening after hours or, but we, we are all here for the same purpose. And uh, we, you know, we are on 24-7. I, I don't know if Felicia wants to comment about, about the testing process, but she has been really working insistently about it. I have, a, I have a patient, I take care of her son. She is a Kaiser patient herself. When she went, she had uh, seven days to wait, uh, well, three days to get the test and, and, and seven, seven days to get the results. So uh, testing uh, turnaround time is a problem which is experienced throughout uh, throughout uh, you know the, the 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 East Bay. I don't know if uh, if Felicia you want to comment about like uh, the what we just have heard in terms of the of the of the testing. It is going to be very difficult. Yes, indeed. But we are delivering surgical services. Our OR has been busy. We are doing our best. We don't have. We haven't had uh, you know these big outbreaks that happened in other health system. We had the, the outbreak at John George that everybody knows about, and you know we were able to get our hands around it. We had the sniff outbreak with one uh, patient, but 
But uh, as a health system, we have performed well in this in this epidemic. I understand that we are all fatigued. I understand that we are at the at the personal level and professional level. You know, a, a little bit, uh, you know, uh, like living a different life. But you know, we we are here for for this. This is this is what's testing us. Felicia, you want to comment? Uh, I, I don't have a lot to add just with respect to the testing. I mean, there's lots of, um, I, I can talk at least about this, the, the different aspects that we've been uh, challenged with. But I, and, and what I do want to say, and uh, Dr. Ballard, I appreciate your words uh, about my work. Um, however, I want to laud the, really the, the work of the entire leadership team that um, we all work together in order to improve the system and to improve patient care. And certainly um, I couldn't get um, uh, anything done without working hand in hand with all of the other leaders in the system who are really, really working hard. So um, I just wanted to ask, so the thing about, um, um, you know, some of you guys are speaking at the macro level and some are speaking at the micro level. Like, so how our responses and how well we've done and what's happening and that I think is really good and we have to affirm those. But the kind of things that Dr. Bullard brought up about mask wearing and things like that, you guys are walking the halls of it. Teresa Cooper is there. Like, can you with fidelity and full, um, you know, confidence, Dr. J, or others say that that is not a problem in our system. Everybody's doing those basic things. Like, can you assure? I, I, I uh, thank you, Trustee Banerjee, for the question. I will tell you uh, that, as I said earlier, it's mixed, uh, but we are not only checking ourselves uh, and, and rounding ourselves to see whether it's working, but we also have put in processes because we're but a few people, where we have other people actually tasked with that specific task. So we're checking, auditing our process. We have other individuals doing the secret shopping to actually see whether people are masking, whether they're doing the temperature screenings across all of our sites. And as I mentioned, uh, we review that data and we do follow up. And there are some instances where it's actually appreciate it where we don't see it happening and other people are reporting uh, when it doesn't happen. But when we try to look at it both as a anecdotal, but a data driven perspective too. And the numbers from all of those sources seems to suggest that those instances where it's not happening is actually a minority of the cases. It's not uh, broad spread, but it's not universal. I am con uh, actually conceding that. I think if you round it with me, you would see that as well. But what you would see is by and large, that is in fact happening. I think it's like sometimes I feel these discussions get into a us versus you thing. I think what we are saying is a we thing. So it's not, it's not like there's no, it's not finger pointing at one. But given that we are a hospital system, we should be 100% wearing masks. Like there's no like, hey, we are doing well. We're five months into this this pandemic where like it has to be internalized into our DNA that 100% of the time this system is doing that and the onus is on everybody. So this okay. is like one of those. So when you say it's we, it's we, it's all of us. 
Oh, absolutely. I, I hope absolutely. that's what you heard from me. Yes, yeah. absolutely. But I, I want to be clear. Yeah, it is a the expectation is 100%. Uh, again, the workforce, though, is made up of, of people, uh, people of different walks. And some people, when I say people aren't masking, I'm not saying someone is effectively walking around with no mask at all. I'm talking about people masking properly. I'm not, and we do have uh, situations where even I have done it. I've walked out of my office where I've been for a couple of hours, walk out and forget my mask. I walked into the cafeteria and basically like just had this like, oh my gosh. People have those instances and you remind them and redirect them and people will uh, comply. So it's not that it's not a hundred percent expectation. It's not that we're assuming that people aren't doing it. We are in fact all in this together. And those are the messages that we espouse. So I I hope that that's what you're hearing. The the short of it, I just want to say out of respect for time as well as situation. I think we all appreciate the feedback. I want to make sure that you all know that we are very responsive to this and uh, have a lot of evidence of individual responsibility, including I want to acknowledge and thank Dr. Boulard. When I got one staff person saying to me, hey, Please mute yourself if you're not the one speaking. Thank you. Um, that, you know, I, I will take messages from individual staff about I walked into the door, uh, door at 7 o'clock in the morning and a doctor didn't have his mask on or a nurse didn't have his mask on. And we respond to that. I even got a compliance officer involved in a situation where the person told me that the person was rude to them uh, when they tried to redirect them. Uh, we dealt with that situation because I think we have to be uh, responsible in every single situation as best we can. So, so yes, we have work to do. We always have work to do. I believe we're doing well. I believe people are uh, doing their level best and uh, I want to be better uh, for our system. It is not macro versus uh, micro. It's not we versus us. Uh, I respect and appreciate everybody's perspective. I'll ask Dr. Ballard and I'll follow up with her later uh, if there's some specific things that I can help with uh, uh, and work with the rest of the organization to make sure that we are shoring up those opportunities just as we did with the others. And with her support, I'm more than happy to do that. Thanks, Delvecchio. Dr. Bouquet, were you getting ready to say something? go a little meta here. I think part of the infrastructure, because the whole theme here was infrastructure uh, for Dr. Ballard, and I, I, I live it with her. And I think part of the infrastructure's job is to identify itself as such, right? So so, so I would hope, and Dr. Ballard, you can answer, did you know how to navigate that particular scenario? Was the, was the changing command pathway to identify it? Because you can write policies at high level, we have a command and control structure in this. But if the person at the, at the ground level doesn't understand it, then it's sort of not really a policy or, or procedure, no matter how hard everyone worked on it. So again, to get met a part of our opportunity is to clarify what the infrastructure is. How we navigate exactly is this one. Kelly, did you know how to navigate this problem? Yeah, I, I talked to the clinic, you know, I talked to the clinic staff, I talked to the clinic manager, and the, the system just wasn't built in a way that was functional. And it's funny because I had the same conversation with the new trauma director. He was going on and on about a policy, and I said, but you need to understand in the reality of our existence, we can't do it that way because these pieces don't exist. Those connections don't exist. That process is not one that can be tested and be successful. And that's why we've done it this other way against the policy for so long. And he went, ah, oh, like, maybe we need to revise the policy or build the system. 
And it's the same thing with this. I'm not, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to find fault with any specific clinic manager. I mean, she was basically following the, the construct of what she had been instructed to do. It's just that what she had been instructed to do had not been road tested to be seen that it wasn't going to be successful because of the disconnect, because same day the, the um, place where the testing happens doesn't really have a relationship or any way to feed back to the people that need to have that information. There's a, there's not a connection there. And it's basic, pro, you know, it's basic system processing analysis that shows you, oh, well, that's not going to work because these people don't have those connections. You don't have it unless people are on the ground, in the mix, looking at it and doing a walkthrough and going, oh, this is not going to work this way. Maybe we need to find a different solution. And, um, and, and I would say that there's so many parts of AHS and that there's just enough of a difference between all of these different pieces and that's why I say you can't sit in a room with a post-it note because all of these places look very similar and you think, oh yeah, you can apply this. But when you get down to it and you actually are there on the ground, you realize that maybe that process won't work just exactly that way in this setting. Can, um, I, can I just make a comment here, Kelly? Uh, I mean, we have to take this offline. This is taking a long time, but the restoration committee took the plan that was designed by the frontline people and also was reviewed by the physician leadership and the chair. They were part of designing this plan and everybody was involved from nursing to operation to physician. So in case there is uh, a failure as such, we'll take it offline and we'll learn from it. And we asked for a feedback. We did ask for a feedback. I mean, we, the, the restoration committee really went through this plan and sent it back and they, they came back. So it wasn't really an up down plan by no means. And, and, and uh, it was a plan that was really designed by the chair of surgery, by the directors, by the chiefs, by the nursing directors, by the operational leaders. And uh, the star team also went through a very thorough checklist. Actually, it was quite extensive in terms of communication. But anyway, any, any, any process can, can, can fail. Uh, and we really need to take a look at this. We'll take it offline. Thank you, Dr. Jamaluddin, and thank you, Dr. Ballard. And I agree, I was starting to feel a little lost, like maybe we were getting a little in the weeds there for a minute. Um, I think um, I, it sounds to me like one thing I did hear repeatedly is we have some amazing physician leaders. Um, several of them just spoke. I have no doubt that as we continue to move forward, we'll be able to work together. And I also have no doubt that there will be continued frustrations and things that are brand new and things that we don't have something already figured out for. Um, and I guess my hope is that we learn from those bright spots and those, those strong leaders and those strong processes and cross-pollinate across our different sites and locations and that we definitely work together in the most um, concerted manner that we can because we really, um, we, the time, you know, we really need to. Um, the one thing I will just say, though, is that um, I am concerned as we head into what looks to be, you know, this surge, that um, we have to have a no-tolerance policy for our staff around masks. That is my opinion. It's my opinion as a clinical leader. Um, it's my opinion based on um, the way that this um, virus is now circulating and the fact that we cannot afford to lose our clinical staff either to the virus itself to having to quarantine because of undue exposure. And particularly, um, I'm impressed at where we are with our PPE. I'm impressed at where we are with our staff um, 
uh, cases. They're very, very low. And, and from our drill down in the COVID task force, um, many of them don't appear to be acquired in the workplace. Um, and so I think those are testaments to how well we've done so far. Um, it's time to take it up a notch, in my opinion. If there is anyone who works at AHS who's not wearing a mask within the facility, and sorry, Delvecchio, you outed yourself, so you're included in that. Um, we can't afford to forget, right? Not only for our own safety and the safety of everyone in our facilities, but because we are the example. We are the public hospital safety net. We are the example. If community comes in and sees a medical professional that is not wearing a mask, what does that say to them? And we are turning to them all the time and saying, comply, comply, comply. Well, we have to, too. Um, so on that note, I would like to pass it over to Dr. Ingenio. Thank you. Um, I uh, will have some information that's probably a little more granular. Uh, but the report from San Leandro Hospital uh, will comprise a few different items. We did not have a leadership meeting this meeting. It's become uh, bi-monthly or every other month. Um, however, I do uh, speak frequently to the emergency department, surgery, as well as the hospitalists, which are the main three groups um, within the, the system. And so um, in terms of uh, the emergency department, Dr. Afzali has reported to me that things are actually working quite smoothly, um, where uh, he's overall happy with the new nursing leadership, uh, feels that that's working quite well. Um, his main concern is the time to get COVID testing. Unfortunately, that um, there's quite a bit of time. I guess there's only two couriers a day to San Leandro, um, and that leads to some fairly significant delays um, and can really affect disposition of patients in the emergency department. They're hoping to get some testing, um, the rapid testing on site at San Leandro. I think that's being worked on and hopefully that will be available. Um, however, they're managing the volumes uh, well. Um, as far as the uh, hospitalists go, uh, they did have quite a surge. At one point, they had 20 COVID positive patients. I think most of them for, from uh, San Quentin um, up on the third floor. That has dropped uh, dramatically. They're working with the physicians there. And I think they did a yeoman's job. I, I really want to commend them um, for the work they've done handling that uh, uh, onslaught. Um, as far as the Department of Surgery, I, I think I do have some concerns still with volume, as I've mentioned in the past. Um, I, I do really feel that the operating room there needs some infrastructure investment. I know there's no money um, for things, but to really keep doing what we're doing, we're going to have to do some upgrading of some of the facilities there. Um, and I hope we can do that in the near future to keep the work we're doing. I mean, and realistically, at the moment, we're, we're COVID testing our uh, quote-unquote elective patients, although we're not doing much uh, purely elective work. But realistically, um, if, if within the system there is a one-hour test, even in a patient that's urgent from the day before or from the emergency room, should really be able to be tested, not just screened before we take them to the operating room. I think mainly for the safety of the anesthesiologist. So um, those are concerns I've had, um, and that uh, would conclude my report. I'm willing to answer any questions should they be required. Questions for Dr. Ingenio? 
Okay, with that, we'll go to Dr. Marzouk. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, our last meeting, we uh, had uh, ongoing discussions uh, about uh, providing system-wide specialty coverage, uh, particularly in neurology and uh, urology, and those are being uh, addressed uh, for eventual telemedicine, particularly in, in neurology and a potential for urology. Uh, the, the other part of the meeting was uh, we had an educational uh, uh, discussion by Dr. English uh, about uh, new information blocking, which in uh, changes to electronic health records, primarily uh, that uh, patients are going to have access to all their information uh, and that not be blocked. Uh, except in unusual circumstances. Uh, this will be apparently implemented, uh, obviously, system-wide in the next uh, uh, six months or, or so over a six-month extension. Uh, so we were educated about that potential. And uh, finally, uh, we were very pleased as packet uh, is uh, our uh, patient experience scores uh, we're well in, in the green for the month of April, a tremendous improvement uh, in terms of uh, nursing uh, treatment with respect, uh, rating the hospital at 9 to 10. Uh, physician uh, are treating patients with courtesy and respect, all improved uh, 8 out of 10 scores, and a uh, real kudos to our nursing staff and uh, administrators and all uh, uh, who have uh, helped them at uh, that was a positive note. And that was essentially uh, my report. Uh, if there are any questions, uh, be happy to address them. Any questions for Dr. Marzouk? All right, thank you. Thank you. All right, moving to committee reports. Dr. Bouquet, QPSC. Um, uh, Dr. Bouquet, it's pretty hard to hear you. Can you hear me? No. That work? Okay, you might have to yell, but it's just a little muffled. No muffled? That's better. Okay, he was working before. I'll just move my face closer to the mic. Um, uh, QPS uh, was held in regular event on uh, June 25th. We approved uh, standard policies and procedures. Uh, our, our, our journal club for that day uh, included three uh, articles related to race. And our first was called Black Lives Matter. It was a statement drafted by our own resident physicians here at Highland Hospital. That is in the packet. I encourage any and all of the board of trustees to read that. It was a pretty powerful statement by three of our own residents. The second article was called Stolen Breaths. It was written by uh, uh, a number of providers out of the University of Minnesota. It was also another powerful statement of why and how and, and, and what is going on in America vis-a-vis -vis race and medicine. And then the last article we discussed was actually a news report uh, coming out of Dallas, and it was entitled 
Dallas County declares racism a public health emergency. Uh, all of this ensued in a very robust dialogue around health equity. Uh, we talked about uh, Trustee Fernandez in our capacity co-chairing um, the heady committee with, with Del Vecchio. And, and we even had a robust dialogue around discussion of race, uh, anti-racism as a strategy rather than a lens through which we saw. Um, we then heard medical staff reports. We heard the post-acute SBU report from uh, Mr. Espinoza. And then we, we continued in our long series of discussions about the intent, intensive outpatient program, uh, which we actually, again, continue today. Um, uh, the, I think the, the full board will hear this perhaps uh, in ongoing dialogue, and it will ultimately be manifest in our um, fiscal uh, discussions and our budget approval. That dialogue is a deep one, and it's, it's ongoing. I encourage all of you to read the minutes and the submissions to the QPSC. Last but not least, we heard from Regulatory Affairs and the True North Metrics, and uh, the True North Metrics actually laid the groundwork for today's vote on, on uh, 12 quality-related True North metrics, which we voted and approved with today, which I think will go forward. That was the full report. As always, uh, those documents are in your packet. All right. Any questions for Dr. Bouquet? No, is the mic better now? Yes. Okay. I don't know what that was. Sorry. No, that's fine. Trustee, a lot of were a couple of uh, speakers uh, on this item. Yes. Uh, Chelsea DeMarte? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. So, yes. Um, so, I'm here on behalf of the IOP program, and I have several of my colleagues that will speak after me. And we just wanted to follow up on the last meeting we had with some of the trustees. Um, and in particular, um, we want to address some misconceptions and some misunderstandings that we felt like were communicated in that meeting to the trustees. Um, and in particular, for Trustee Maria Hernandez and uh, Luis Chiconi, we would love to invite you to have a private meeting with us to um, discuss some of the concerns that you raised, um, because there's no way we can do that within two minutes uh, today. So we will reach out to you over email. So the first point that I wanted to address had to do with something that Maria Hernandez brought off brought up when we were talking about, um, you asked if the county wellness center model would be able to adequately, adequately take care of our current patients in IOP. And this is really a question of access versus clinical intervention. Um, a county wellness center model will, will increase access to mild to moderately mentally ill people and will be a good um, option for them, but it will not be an appropriate option for severely mentally ill people. Um, and that is because the wellness center model is made up of groups that are run by unlicensed interns, by volunteer peer volunteers that are not appropriate or not qualified to give the level of intervention that severely mentally ill people need. Also, it's a misconception that the county will take care of our population. If a person has Medicare, the county refers them to us. Um, uh, Medicare makes a person in ineligible for county behavioral health services because, because technically they already have insurance. Um, so a Medicare person could access a wellness center, but it's not a place where they would get the treatment they needed, the level of care that they needed, and they would unnecessarily increase the risk for hospitalization. So that is why they really are in need of the IOP services. Furthermore, it was said that 
if our patients would be referred out to other IOPs if they were not their needs were, their needs were not met in the wellness center. This is not true. There are currently no other IOPs in Alameda County that we can refer our current clients out to. The only other IOPs that exist are all private insurance-based programs. So that would literally leave our patients with no safety net. They would be cycling in and out of John George, and this would actually increase the homelessness problem that was um, uh, the concern that was addressed. Thank you so, so thank you much. very much. I'm going to defer. The next Thank person. you so much. Appreciate that, Chelsea. Um, and just a reminder on the three minutes, um, please. Dr. Self, I have you next. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Good. Good. My name is Ron Seff. I'm the psychiatrist and uh, medical director at the uh, intensive outpatient program at uh, the Fairmont campus. Um, I was at the meeting today, uh, and a point was made at that meeting that we treat such a small portion of people within the mental health community. Currently, there's some 200 or so patients um, between the two programs at Highland and Fairmont uh, that are in our IOP programs. This might lead to the misconception that we are ignoring uh, the vast majority of the mental health population, since it is obviously much larger than two, uh, 200 or so patients. Well, my response to that is this. It is actually a blessing that that, that is all there are. In, in truth, there are more than 200, but uh, we are treating those mental health patients with the highest level of acuity, the ones that are the most unstable, the most psychotic, the most depressed and potentially suicidal, and the most unable to function independently these are the most seriously disturbed people in the outpatient mental health system. These are the ones most likely, likely to cycle in and out of the psychiatric hospital, the ones most likely to end up in the jail system, and the ones most likely to end up homeless. We are, in essence, the ICU of outpatient mental health. It is inappropriate medically, psychiatrically, and humanistically to treat this level of mental disturbance at a wellness center level of support. The level of expertise and training and professionalism that's necessary uh, to treat this level of severe mental disturbance is simply not there in the wellness center setting. It's our mission at the IOP to see that these folks do not end up institutionalized, do not go through the revolving door of psychiatric hospitalizations, uh, and that they reach a level of stability that they can step down safely and successfully to the wellness center level of support. Uh, we find it to be an ex extraordinarily successful service. We have 20 plus years of experience uh, running this service uh, and our, our results speak for themselves. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Really appreciate you taking the time. Um, Lucy Colvin. Yes, um, hello. Um, I just wanted to further talk about our intensive outpatient service. I know our leadership has been working with us and a lot of the leadership have been with us a very little time. And I'm not sure they really understand um, uh, why we exist, what we do and who we serve. 
We serve a population of more than a thousand of the county's most severely mentally ill who have no other viable option of care. Well, our current census is in the range of 200. Historically, it was 300. We've had some limitations put on us. It represents a larger population of severely mentally ill who have depended on us as a safety net between them and the hospital and limited service options in the county for 25 years. We get numerous county case management referrals, many, many, they refer to us. Uh, psychiatrists from the county refer to us. We are comparable to the complex care services provided at AHS for medically compromised patients who overutilize emergency services. Chelsea was saying there are no other IOPs for MediMedi and there aren't. We are it. Um, we are the outpatient ICU that keeps these high users out of the hospital, keeps them out of being homeless. Some of them even go into shelters and we're always working on that with them. We're like a level 14 versus a level eight in some other structures. All counties have IOPs to serve these exceptionally mentally ill people. And we are it for Alameda County. That is why we exist. Be between Highland and Fairmont, we are um, very racially diverse. We serve a very racially diverse population and we are constantly striving to serve our clients in a racially equitable ways for over a year. We have had an anti-racism committee to look system-wide at our program and make it the best possible program that it can be. We would really be happy to answer any questions that any of you have as to why there is a need for an intensive outpatient program, as well as we want, you know, we said we would expand into a wellness center with option three that you all have been given. Um, if you de if you get rid of the IOP, you will fill up John George and PES and the jails and more homeless people, and you will um, not know you know, that will provide a huge problem. And so that's what we have to keep looking at. We are serving, uh, Chacon, uh, you, you had asked, what are the percentage that are potentially homeless? Most of our clients are potentially homeless. We are constantly striving to keep them able to be in housing in the community and stable. And we really want to work with you to make this the most viable LP IOP that it can be while we expand into a wellness center um, and into a uh, other outpatient services. And we invite all of you to come and to really find out the kind of people that we serve who are really living on the edge. Um, and, and we appreciate being able to serve them. And we appreciate working with you to further um, continue to serve them and in your understanding of how we are the high intensity. We are the people who serve like the people who overuse emergency rooms. We serve the people who overuse PES in the hospital. Our data shows that we have kept people out of the hospital who had very high user before they came to our program. Um, and you know they step down and then sometimes they come back for a, a tune up again. 
So we're really hoping um, to work with you and having a deeper understanding of why we exist and why we've existed in 25 year, for 25 years and who these really acute people are that we serve um, and not look at it from a distance. Um, really appreciate, please ask us all these questions because we, we are on the ground. We are, I've been there over 20 years and many of us have. So thank you. Thank really you appreciate very much. It. Yes, thank you. And thank you. And I, and I do, I admire your um, persistence and continuing to come back to inform us of these things. And thank you for the additional uh, nuance today. Uh, Craig thank Metz. you so much. Thanks. Craig Metz. Hi, um, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, so I'm, I'm just going to, I just want to make one point because we, we were just in the meeting um, before five o'clock and um, the, you know, there were a couple of different options being talked about, about what to do with IOP. One of the options is to keep it and kind of expand it with a, a wellness center in addition, which that, that's something we're very much in favor of. Um, but there is an option of getting rid of IOP and, and someone said that, well, the county will be able to take those people um, and I just want to make that, you know, that, that's just that clear that that's, that's just really not true. There's no, there's no place in the county for our clients. Um, someone already mentioned that there's, there's not another IOP program, but also the, um, the county just doesn't work with Medicare, um, because it, that's considered people already have insurance. So the county refers them to us, people who have that, um, and you know mostly what happens to our clients when they don't uh they aren't able to access our services just, and just keep in mind that our clients are they're high acuity people right they're people that are actively psychotic they're not these aren't um you know they're not just like the people that are sort of getting by and a little depressed they're like you know it's like high acuity severe and persistent mental illness um I mean, what the county has to offer um, is what they call like full service partnership. And what that means is crisis case management. Um, that's really all they have for, for clients that are in high acuity. And that's not treatment. Um, and what that means is that clients, um, the clients that we serve, that we're able to stabilize, otherwise end up, you know, 911 calls, they go to the emergency room, they go to jail. They go to inpatient care, they go to John George, go to PES. So that, that's all the point I want to make is there's, there's no place in the county for our clients. We, we serve a, a very specific niche um, for, for just, you know, these high acuity, um, severe and persistent mental illness clients with Medicare. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it as well. Uh, we have Parisa Farohi next. Thank you so much. Um, my name is Parisa. I have been the outreach coordinator as well as the therapist for um, the past 19 years, actually, at outpatient psychiatric services. So I actually want to speak to the misconception that we don't serve the um, homeless population. I was thrown off by that. Um, we actually, and this is why I'm a social worker at heart, I, we tried to reach out to everybody, everyone in our community who needs our services. This is what keeps me going to connect everyone to mental health services, especially the homeless. 
um, we actually prevent patients um, from becoming homeless because we help them maintain their housing by intervening early if they're having more symptoms or if they're having a psychiatric crisis. We jump in, we work with the boarding cares so they won't kick him out of the boarding cares. So this is how we um, prevent that from happening. Um, we have lots of our patients who've had a history of homelessness. Um, I also want to stress that we work very closely with um, homeless shelters. They refer um, um, patients to us um, and we pick them up from homeless um, shelters. We have worked with um, shelters such as South County Homeless Shelter, Fesco Family Shelter, Midway Shelter of Alameda, and Images Homeless Shelter. And so um, those are how we're collaborating with um, care providers in the community to make sure that their housing as well as their mental health needs go hand in hand, because that's what we want to make sure, because both of them are so connected. Um, also, uh, we get referrals from folks who are homeless. And what we do is, even though we don't have case manager, we're all pretty much case managers ourselves. And uh, because we have connections with these folks in the community, we help them get connected to housing. So that's the part that we do. Um, we have connections with Borden Cares as well as the shelters um, who know us really well. Um, so wanted to clarify that. Thank you. Um, yeah, just one more thing about, um, we also work with distress planners at other hospitals, coordinating housing and services. I want to mention that John George used to have discharge planners. They don't anymore. So I think what the focus should be is um, to develop communication um, and um, um, support. Um, of coordination of these services and the referrals from John George for our program better so we can more work more efficiently and we can get more of their folks to us, homeless or not homeless, so we can help them. So I just wanted to really clarify that. Thank so you. Thank you so much. Appreciate, Appreciate that. All right. And then we have Ariana Casanova. Hi, good evening, trustees. Thank you for this time. I wanted to just um, acknowledge and want to um, keep working together on this IOP wellness center model that we've been discussing. We've been making progress. We've been make, being able to communicate and coordinate and partner together. And I look forward to continuing to do that and communicating any concerns, questions in the, in the future. I also can't help, and I'm a little shaken up, and I do want to thank um, your chief of staff um, Dr. Bullard, sorry if I'm saying your name wrong. I'm And my voice is going to get shaky, I'm sorry. The reason why I say this is because in the last 24 hours, everything she said, I can echo in the rest of the facilities from San Leandro to the um, OT therapists that serve outpatient to Fairmont campus. And it's been frustrating. And I have documentation, I have emails to every manager in my turf, to higher ups, to Tony Redmond, to environmental health. And the response is, oh, we follow protocol and CDC guidelines. 
And there's all these loopholes. There's all these holes in exposure and testing and addressing some of this. And I'm sorry to take this time from the IOP. It, I I want to thank her for voicing that. And I would love um, Mr. Del Vecchio and Dr. Jamala Dean. I hope I didn't slaughter your last name. I welcome you to please call my cell phone. I welcome you to have a meeting with me. There's a group of people that we're continuously meeting and talking about exposure, Cal OSHA violations, and we don't escalate it. We want to work with you all. And it's frustrating when we don't, the same gaps and holes continue to happen with exposures where a, a, an OT will go into the system and realize that they're about to do physical therapy or outpatient therapy, whatever you want to call it, with a patient, and they've been positive, and they just saw them the week before, and no one's talked to them. Then they go to their supervisor, their director, environmental health, and they don't contact them for a week. They have symptoms. They then take it upon themselves to go to their PCP, and it doesn't... Um, it still doesn't get addressed, and then they feel like they're being punitive against them for raising it. And so I really welcome anybody to have that conversation with me. Just in the 24 hours, I'm like I mentioned, I have four that I will be sending an email about. I just have very busy, as you all are. Um, and the last thing, and I'll go back to IOP, but I wanted to take that time away to really acknowledge and thank Dr. Bullard and Please, Dr. Jamaladeen and Dr. and um, Delvecchio, listen to her. She's, don't take offense. We are all part of the same community and want to serve all these people. And we really need to be better before the surge comes. And I've documented that multiple times. And lastly, I will just say, we would look forward to working, continue working with you all on the IOP and to get more targets, goals, and budget information so that we could be better and frugal and provide the services for psych needs to the entire community. And thank you all for your time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate um, all of the passion and the consistency of all of these speakers um, on, on the IOP. Um, so thank you for that. All right, I am going to move us to uh, Trustee Shaquin, Finance Committee. Yes, good evening. Uh, so Finance Committee met on the 9th of July. Uh, we, the, I'll let uh, our CFO report more fully on the state of our current budget, but the bottom line is we're on track to finish within budget uh, as we close uh, for uh, FY20. Uh, we spent a lot of time reviewing it, uh, and, and actually adopting in the sense of recommending the interim uh, FY21 budget, um, operating and cap budget. Uh, no, I'm sorry, operating with the capital budget um, in advance as we, as staff tries to find the funding to, uh, in the amount of about $43 million to cover essential capital expenditures. So we'll be talking about that at great length tomorrow. Uh, it's the, I believe the first issue on our agenda tomorrow. Um, and uh, this is an interim budget that will take us to September or to September um, or October, depending on uh, the staff's ability to put together a, a final uh, budget uh, for the board of trustees to consider. Um, within that conversation or related to that conversation on the capital side was a report on the roof at Park Bridge. Um, there was an action item 
uh, to authorize getting into a contract for fifty for five point three million dollars to repair the roof on a building we don't own. So the trustees felt, um, and I think staff concurs, that we it's a good moment to look for options um, other than spending that sort of money on a building we don't even own. So uh, the trustees uh, on the committee asked uh, staff to do that, and um, you know it, it's not simple um, finding a alternative approach uh, will be difficult but there are other capital costs in that facility that um, also need attention so that dollar amount is going to increase uh, just to alert you to that uh, finally uh, trustee Peterson and I joined uh, executive leadership in a meeting with um, the um, county leadership uh, and and I believe there were two yeah there were two supervisors involved in a conversation uh, related to permanent agreement requirement that when we are about to exceed the NMB neg net negative balance um, that we have a conversation or conversations and uh, this is the second of two conversations I'm pleased to report that there was a very collaborative spirit uh, that's continuing in that meeting problem solving. Um, and uh, I have to commend staff for providing very clear reports on where we stand and where we will stand on our ability to uh, meet the um, NMB limit. And uh, the bottom line is our recoupments will be coming due in um, October and December, putting us over the limit. And uh, the, the county's fully aware of that and working with us um, to resolve that problem. Any questions? I can make some comments related to May, if you'd like. Please. Please. So May was a difficult month. Um, we had a net loss of 17.4 million, which was 11.3 worse than budget. Our EBITDA was negative uh, 10.3, and that's 7.7 .7 million below budget. Most of it was driven by COVID. As uh, Lewis explained, year to date, we're still look to be able to achieve budget. Um, we've got about um, maybe 14 million of room in our net income. So that's the good news of this. Our charges were down in May 8% and we also adjusted measure A down. We think come in 5 million less than our budget of 117.7. We're high. Um, we had 440.4 FTEs on a paid COVID leave and we had high registry costs backfilling. Um, we are meeting the NNB in May and project we will uh, for year end. I think uh, the update has been given pretty much on that. And the only other comment I would say on the revenue cycle, we are red for denials. We're doing pretty good in the other areas. It's important to remember that with the pandemic, some of the stats can be misleading. 
but uh, denials is an area where we are red and we are focusing on it and things are improving. So I look forward to next month when I get to give that report. Any questions? Any questions for Kim or Lewis, Trustee Shaquin? Hearing none, we'll go to Trustee Jensen for HR committee. Um, thank you. I The HR committee met on the 8th of the month and the primary discussion, all of the discussion was about COVID-19 and the impact on on staff on we talked about the extent that staff is taking leave for COVID-19 to mainly to care for others or um, to avoid illness we talked about the benefits um, and remote working changes we spent quite a bit of time also on on telecommuting and how that's being implemented and which employees are eligible for to telecommute there was a um, discussion about the um, that Telemedicine, telehealth benefit for the independence plan for the um, healthcare plan for some employees. The um, COVID, we talked about the employee's ability to get tested and how that's being um, provided and how they can access those that benefit. We talked about the um, a great benefit that I wasn't aware of called the Bright Horizons Dependent Care, and AHS provides um, a very seems kind of unique to me a, a benefit where those employees who are caring for someone who would otherwise be in a um, in a care situation out of the home that we provide coverage at a very very reasonable cost to have um, that care provided so that was that was very interesting there was a finally a discussion about negotiations with the um, negotiations and, and especially how the negotiations are going based on um, the current situation with COVID-19. So it, it was a, a good meeting. If um, Tony is on and he wants to add anything, that would be great. Uh, I, thank you, Trustee Jensen. I think you covered everything. I don't think I've got anything to add. And if anyone has any questions, Tony or I can answer, please share. Questions regarding HR committee? Thank you, Trustee Jensen. All right, Heady Task Force update, Trustee Hernandez. Sorry about that. I um, needed to find the right button there. Um, on July 1st, we had all five task forces uh, representing the various domains that are part of the um, efforts at AHS. Uh, those include uh, workforce diversity, equity of care, workforce development, integrated community partnerships, and inclusive leadership development. We all met to hear the report out on what each of those different task forces have identified as priorities within the domains that they manage. It was so impressive. I, I just hope um, one of our 
future retreats, we can actually all take a look at what everyone has done to arrive at identifying priorities to address. Um, and also to be very honest and candid, they identified a lot of opportunities, of course, um, and that has been well-received, very uh, noble effort on the part of all of the participants. Um, we are now going to um, look again at the uh, charter or the statement for HETI, um, not the mission statement, but as it is a position statement, if you will, and that's going to be revised a little bit, so we're getting more feedback on that statement. Um, but the next steps are going to be to meet again with the chairs, uh, look a little bit more deeply into some of those priority items, and we want to give them a little bit more time to actually um, collect uh, more insight and input into those priorities that they have identified. Um, and so we're going to do that because um, there's so much work to do. Um, and so a final set of summary recommendations will come to the trustees. Uh, I think it's between now and November. I, I just want to say that um, the amount of effort that has gone in by each of these task forces is remarkable. Um, and we're looking for early wins, things that we might try to um, you know, in essence, start right away. And I, I hope by next month we can talk about those. I, I don't want to speculate right now, but it, it's fair to say that many are looking at what Hetty's up to, what we're doing. Uh, I think many people are very excited about it. And the just tension exists between looking at um, assessing where we are versus taking action. And certainly there's a lot of interest in what is the action that we're going to take immediately. So I think in the next 30 days, we'll begin to identify some of those things, or at least the priority items, and we will be able to uh, develop um, uh, you know, some, some immediate uh, tasks to do. So uh, that's the report from the HETI committee. And uh, Delvecchio, do you want to add anything to that? Sorry, I needed to unmute. No, thank you, uh, Trustee Hernandez, and 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 uh, it, it bears saying thank you for your uh, expertise and continued leadership uh, uh, with this group too. I know it's been very valuable uh, for me, and and certainly I can uh, 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 attest that it's been uh, valuable to the group as well. So, really want to uh, say that. And then just to your latter point, yeah, there are there are a lot of things we're we're doing to make sure that there is a healthy calibration between uh, what you and I heard from the group, which is uh, an appreciation that the process has taken a while, but they want to be, you know, very thoughtful about the work they're doing. So they're asking even for a little bit more time to kind of work through that and give it its due uh, consideration, which we very much appreciate. Uh, but at the same time, there are things uh, that are uh, uh, continuing to happen and continue to be advanced with, uh, within the organization with respect to service delivery. Uh, that's uh, um, um, a premise on an equity lens. Uh, with uh, respect to uh, conversations and um, uh, discussions that are happening uh, throughout the organization that are enhancing our um, um, awareness and sensitivity to issues around race, equity, structural racism, biases, and otherwise. And I have to give a um, uh, shout out to our, our medical staff uh, leaders, particularly in the 
uh, Department of Medicine and uh, Emergency Medicine, and uh, the trustees will be happy to know that uh, even at uh, um, uh, at Alameda Hospital in particular, uh, where we had some instances of public reports of uh, suspected, um, meaning honoring the patient's uh, uh, perspective, uh, treatment that was um, potentially biased or the patient uh, considered to be biased based off of her ethnicity and our clinical leadership there really taking the lead on uh, pulling together a stakeholder group to uh, assemble, uh, as you've talked about in a lot of these conversations, a a, um, a focus group to really uh, work with our patients and our community to ensure that we have an equity lens in the organization and uh, really facilitating some dialogue and bringing in outside expertise uh, as well to uh, to um, uh, broaden our awareness and our sensitivity. So uh, a lot of things are happening in the in the interim, uh, and they are direction, directionally aligned with some of the uh, work that's uh, uh, assessment that's been done through this committee, and I'm sure will be uh, supportive of the path that uh, we forge um, uh, once we do get the results. So thank you. Thank you both. Questions for Trustee Hernandez or for Delvecchio about the heavy committee. All right. So next we've got the COVID-19 task force um, and Taft hopefully chime in or Delvecchio or I've missed anything. We've gone to uh, every two week cadence uh, with the idea that we may need to go back up to once a week, just depending on um, how things continue to unfold. Um, the focus of our, um, I think, discussion this time was really um, less about how we're resuming services and just more about seeing where we currently are um, with the with the status where we have an increasing number of COVID patients um, in the hospital. Um, we were able to look at some fancy data charts um, that uh, the team put together. Uh, we looked at average length of stay for COVID patients, which is a question that we had to help us um, kind of understand um, a, a little more, I guess, of the nuance as we look at um, at surge planning about by using the experience that we've had, I think, thus far. Um, and so that that those were interesting um, data points to look at. Um, and we also spent a considerable amount of time actually talking about um, the state of affairs with our PPE, um, which is looking good and not without obvious bumps in the road. Um, also testing, um, which remains a challenge, not just for AHS, but I think everywhere. Um, I think the system in general was experiencing some backlogs and um, turnaround times that look like the beginning of the pandemic almost. And that is, uh, you know, in that that's from some of the commercial labs and then certainly the just challenges with the supply chain that have been pretty relentless throughout this whole thing that have led to dips in availability of testing kits and things like that. So all of that continues, unfortunately, to be a challenge, um, not not only for us, but uh, in general. And so those are some of the realities that we're still facing as we um, kind of head into this uh, increasing number of cases, increasing number of hospitalizations uh, countywide. But I think that the the good news and, and um, you know, we certainly did spend a fair amount of time discussing uh, that so far, the um, the low number of cases among staff, um, the swift, I think, response to when we have had any cases, um, and the relatively good availability of PPE, and a, and a really good, I think, line of sight on where we are with the NICE dashboard um, that's available for everyone to see and kind of a higher level of conversation and transparency um, around uh, where we stand with those things. Um, so did I leave anything out? 
uh, either Trusty Banerjee, Trusty Bouquet, Del Vecchio. It was a nice summary of it. I think it's been, it's a, I think it's a useful sounding board uh, interacting with the CEO and the board uh, about this, you know, talking about concerns outside the data and sometimes ha finding ways to migrate the data to our key stakeholders. I think the data has helped us to clarify the issues of safety. We have a dashboard about our PPE. Uh, it's been in the green for much of it. I think that's important for not only ourselves, but all our internal stakeholders and external stakeholders to be aware of. And, and then while 38 uh, seems like it's too much, in, a, in relative terms, at one is too much, 38 employees who, who've contracted that across 4,500 employees, you know, we're talking about a rate of around 0.01 or something like that. So I think that's important. It shouldn't belie the fears that our organization has within it, but I think that is important data uh, to, 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 for us all to digest. And then last but not least, helping to steward uh, our CEO and his dialogues when we, when we confront these uh, mini crises within the big crises, the mini crisis now being COVID tests and, it's, and, and the adequacy of, uh, or, or the supply of which we have. So I think it's been an effective meeting and then it's about how we can broadcast the findings of those effective meetings. I think we talked about some strategies for that vis-a-vis -vis our supervisors, maybe some of our uh, internal uh, partners, be it the unions, be it the doctors or what have you, and of course the board of trustees. So I, I'm, I'm glad to be a part of it. Any other additions, any questions? Uh, Madam President, I, I actually, I'm gonna call you out a little bit. You, sure. In your day job, which is probably more in a day job, uh, you're doing briefings now, and I was able to catch that this morning. You did something very powerful in that, I'm, and I'm wondering if you could uh, share that later with folks. The, you, you pulled out the numbers of positivity by zip code. Very powerful to see, uh, not surprising to, to someone like me that works with uh, low-income populations, but incredible numbers in East Oakland in particular. Um, so I was wondering if you might be willing to share that with the, the trustees um, when you have a chance. Absolutely. I'll just sort of say briefly that I think, um, you know, one of the challenges that um, we've had in general is sort of this deluge of numbers and things, and it starts to lose its meaning, I feel like, for people when you say 8,000, 9,000, oh, we're at 10,000, you know, what does that mean to the average person? And so um, I think part of uh, the goal with, with framing the numbers and really looking at the cases per 100,000, which is how we typically look at it, but to drill down and to say that, you know, even if we're talking about Alameda County as a whole, um, which was somewhere around 500 and some uh, per 100,000, and then we look at Oakland, which is over 800, and then we looked at some of the East Oakland zip codes, which were 1,500, 1,800, so don't quote me, but, you know, double and triple sort of the, the case rate that we're seeing uh, for the county. Um, and these are very striking numbers, I think. Uh, I think what's just as concerning is the, the transmission rate, which is, which is increasing. And so as we look at case transmission rate now over one, that's kind of that number we want to see below one. So we know that we're now having accelerated transmission. And when we drill down into East Oakland, the zip code where uh, Root's main uh, campus is in 94603, uh, more than doubled in, in, in about a three-week time period, um, which is very concerning as we start to get really hyper-local um, as we look at, at data. And so I think it's just important that we think about where we are, where our staff live, where our patients live, 
um, and the burden that's going on there because I think all of the reporting with these huge numbers is just, it, it starts to really sort of, you, you sort of lose the meaning of it. Um, and so I, I think, um, and, and again, that's part of why, you know, I had so many strong words about setting that example around mask wearing and things like that, because the other trend that we've been seeing is, um, you know, early on um, for the tests that we're doing um, in East Oakland, and we've done over 6,000 at that walk-up site now um, with close to 650 positives. So we've, we've done a lot of talking to folks who are positive and, and uh, majority of those over 80% are from Oakland and, and um, a lar- oh, actually around 80% are actually from East Oakland. So um, we feel like we have a little bit of a grasp of what's happening there. And um, in May, uh, from the cases from Roots Community Health Center, about 80% were essential workers and their household members. And we know that a lot of those essential workers did not have appropriate PPE. And that's another thing that we've seen that's striking in, in the community testing site is that healthcare workers are coming to get tested, um, but we have not seen um, much of a positivity rate. And so it really speaks to me to the, um, obviously how effective our PPE and our PPE strategies are and that we really need to double down on that and continue doing what we're doing. Um, but but here so far in July, what we're seeing from our testing side is that less than half of the cases now are from essential workers and their household members, and an increasing percentage are from people who are hanging out with family, with friends, unmasked, undistanced, um, going on trips, um, getting in an airplane to hot spots like Florida and Atlanta and Texas uh, and Vegas, and, um, and bringing that uh, virus back here to Oakland. And so people are People are fatigued, just like we're saying, we're all tired. People are tired. They're tired of being um, sort of uh, sheltered in and all of that, and they're letting down their guard. And so um, right at the wrong time, right? And so I think it's just that much more important that we sort of set that standard um, and that example as well and be just hyper vigilant and really aware of what we're seeing um, you know, really right here in Oakland um, in particular and, and other areas of the county as well. Uh, Hayward uh, is is very high in terms of um, their case rate, as well as the Ashland Cherryland area, um, and so those are those are all hot spots and uh, disproportionate number of cases in our Latino population, and still a very disparate uh, death rate among our African American population. So all very concerning as we talk about uh, equity and a strategy to center the people that are being most harmed in this pandemic as well. Mm-hmm. And. Um, if, if I could jump in here, Dr. Naha, uh, on, on this, uh, uh, Lewis, thank you for, for calling her out for her work. I, I've, I've done the same because of my day job. And actually, um, <clears throat> we are uh, profoundly concerned in the city of Oakland about the, the, the dramatic increase in people um, getting uh, catching the virus at social gatherings. Uh, because we've had a giant party every weekend at Lake Merritt, um, literally up to 5,000 people gathering in a one-block spot. Um, illegal vending. Uh, it, it's a, it's, it's, it's um, extremely concerning. And uh, actually, the county health officer and Dr. Noha and Del Vecchio have all been invited to join us tomorrow in the middle of our retreat uh, at a press conference at the lake to send the message out to tell people Please stop. Um, please, please give the lake a break. Give your family a break. Um, and and it was really her data from Roots that inspired us to really um, change direction. We, we were trying to have a harm reduction approach at the lake. Um, it, people just were not listening. So we're going to use this data and try to educate folks. And then 
next weekend we'll be doing enforcement um, after we get the message out with the vendors. But um, it's it's really scary when you look at those numbers and, and when you know that people are you know bringing the virus home from a party and then passing it on to their grandparent who dies. You know, it's just um, it's just not to be so blunt, but that's exactly how it's happening. It you is. Know? And if, for those who missed the live session, that was a terrific briefing, um, Dr. Apoleta. There's a link, a recording of the, um, a link for that. I shared it with Mike Moy. Mike, you want to share it with the rest of the, share it on chat. So folks actually really need to listen to that. Thank you. No, I do want to call out that our colleagues over at Alta Bates Hospital announced the loss of one of their nurses on Friday. Mm -hmm. uh, Janine Paiste Ponder died of COVID-19. Um, and uh, I just think that, again, uh, this is a reminder to us that our frontline staff are really quite vulnerable and susceptible to this virus. Um, I don't know if we can send a, uh, a remark or two uh, on our behalf uh, to Sutter Health, but I can only imagine the pain that they're going through. And um, I think it serves as a reminder of everything that we all know. We need to really be focused on, on minimizing that risk. So just want to call that out. Thank you. Thank you so much for that acknowledgement. Yes, that was a loss. Um, and one is one too many. And one case is one too many, like you said, Taft, but certainly one loss of, of life is, is one too many. Um, all right. Thank you. Any other questions regarding the COVID-19 task force or updates there? All right. Moving us on to the Alameda Hospital I'm system. I'm sorry. Dr. I do have one last question. Uh, yeah. Uh, but the work of the last person and what you found and shown, I think is really exciting, not exciting, but um, it's positive in that we have PPE, we've kept our infection rate among staff extremely low compared to the general population. Does the, is the county getting this? Are, are we sharing this data directly with the full board of supervisors and our other partners so that they're fully uh, looped into this? I'm um, back here, you're muted. Oh, there you go. Um, so I'm happy to share that that advice was uh, given to us by the task force last night or yesterday afternoon. And today uh, we restored our t uh, basically our stakeholder group. Um, uh, so we broadened it. And uh, it's uh, my understanding, I actually can't see the list. And I don't know if Terry's on the call, but uh, my understanding is it's going to... Um, um, local uh, city uh, municipal elected officials, all of the board of supervisors, and I think our state delegation as well, uh, just so we keep all those stakeholders apprised. Uh, we do three times a week here, but we're going to do it weekly and share that dashboard as well as the number of employees. But the, the update went out this afternoon. Uh, could you also be sure to share that update with our labor partners who showed such great concern early on? And I want them to know that we took this seriously and see that data so they can share it with their membership. Absolutely. I think it's a part of the stakeholder group, but I will, I will verify that. Thank you. Yep. Now we need to maintain it. Yeah. Absolutely. Agreed. <laughs> Thank you. Those are great suggestions. And I think we do want to be 
um, you know, more intentional around making sure that we're communicating all of the all of the work that's happening, and so that we all have a kind of a reference point for where we are in this on this fast moving train here. Um, all right, great. So now I'll move us to the Alameda Hospital Seismic Planning Ad Hoc Committee, uh, Trustee uh, Peterson. Yes. Yeah, so so uh, we've had we've been having meetings since last fall. We presented a uh, uh, a report uh, last uh, several weeks ago to the board and we read that at our offsite uh, tomorrow that we would uh, discuss the report in more detail and what the recommendations are and we've invited members of the Alameda hospital district to join us in the discussion as well so I believe it's scheduled for 3 or 3 30 tomorrow as I recall So that's anyway, that's that's kind of my update. It'll be at, at tomorrow's meeting. Yes, and we'll have some time to take a deeper dive there. Any any questions at this point, Trustee Peterson? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, uh, Luis, did you need to add anything there? I do not, thank you. All right, all right, great. Um, so let's move us to the consent agenda. Do I have a motion? Second. Second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 <laughs> Abstain, opposed? All right, motion carries. Okay, let's see, moving us to item E3. No, sorry about that. F1, approval of professional services agreement between AHS and EBMG. Um, Dr. Jamaladi? So, uh, in discussion with council, uh, given my position with the uh, EBMG, I need to recuse myself from action items F1 and F2. Mike, how do we do this? I can physically walk out of my room. What do you, how should I do this? I'm going to walk out of my room. Look, there's a camera on. Make sure you wear a mask. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Go <laughs> Joe. Good job. Okay. So, Mike, are we are we good to continue with the item? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Doc, Dr. Jamaladeen, Approval of Professional Services Agreement. Hi. Uh, good evening. Uh, Again, uh, so this is a professional service agreement uh, between Alameda Health System and the East Bay uh, Medical Group. Uh, this uh, professional service agreement uh, is to uh, uh, have an effective way to pay the East Bay Medical Group for the uh, professional services rendered uh, to Alameda Health System patients. So uh, the AHP, as a sub wholly owned subsidiary, had professional service agreement that dates back to January 2016 that was approved by AHS Board of Trustees. And with the joining of the OCARE Medical Group and the changes that have happened uh, with this, uh, with this uh, uh, merger, uh, we have to update this professional service agreement. So basically, it is updated to include all the services that are going to be provided or uh, started to be provided by uh, the OCARE uh, Medical Group. Uh, we have made the changes uh, that have to do with uh, 
assignment of billing. Initially with Alameda Health Partners, assignment of billing was kept within Alameda Health Partners, uh, but we have found that uh, uh, this, uh, this process has created uh, a loss of revenue opportunity, especially when a physician is supervising a mid-level provider who is an Alameda Health System, uh, unionized uh, uh, provider like an advanced practice provider that uh, the advanced practice provider cannot bill for those services. And also it has created also uh, issues with our metric as it relates to our uh, uh, supplemental funding, especially around uh, the, some of the prime and now equip metric. So uh, we made the decision to keep the uh, assignment of billing and collection within Alameda Health System. And there will be continuous reporting in terms of the productivity of the physicians on a monthly basis in terms of, uh, of uh, RVUs. Uh, I think those are the highlights of this professional service agreement. The chairs have been involved uh, a great deal in terms of the uh, services rendered, and it also account for the affiliation agreement uh, that was, uh, that was uh, uh, brought to this uh, board with the uh, uh, with the O care that was done in June 2019, I think is Ira on on the on the on the call as well. In case there are like specific elements, as well as Kim uh, Miranda, who we can answer questions to the board. Anything, Ira, you want to add, or or Kim? Um, Dr. Jamaluddin, this is Ira. Um, I think that you've covered the highlight points. Um, I'd be happy to help address any drill down, drill down questions if there are any, but I think you've covered it. Okay. Yes, you did a great job. Happy to answer questions also. Trustees, any questions? All right, do I have a motion to approve? Oh. I'll make a motion to approve with a quick comment. Sorry, I'm, my fingers are not fast enough to hit the button. Um, I mean, I think this is a momentous moment, right? Another another step in <laughs> in the unification, and and I just want to acknowledge that this has been a Thank long you. process. It's not been easy, you. and I'm, I'm glad to see that it's continuing. So with that, I'll make a motion to approve. Thank you. Thank you, Trustee DeVries. Yes, thank you. Second motion. Okay. Oh, All in favor? Hi. Hi. Yay, motion carries. <laughs> Give yourself a pat on the back, Dr. J, especially. <laughs> and trustees DeVries and Hernandez, especially. <laughs> and, and everybody. <laughs> really, for the doctors. I'm that, feeling. <laughs> I have to say, for the doctors that really pushed us to make this happen. Um, my, my hats off to them the most. Um, it, there was, it was, uh, we didn't know we would get here when we started and, um, thanks to their, their, their driving push and, and wisdom we got here. Yeah. I, 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 uh, I second this, uh, trustee DeVries. I, I really want to thank all, uh, the doctors, especially the leadership uh, doctors in Oak Care who really have helped tremendously. And, um, uh, to, to achieve this, uh, I, I can say, uh, I mean, we still have a great deal of work ahead of us, as uh, as you all know. Uh, but we had our first first payroll last Friday, and you know we had some wrinkles, but we were able to navigate through them. And the transition, in general, all things considered, has been, has been quite smooth. 
Well, this is fantastic. I'm really looking forward to just working with the physician leadership and um, just, yeah, just really excited about, about this new day um, and know that there will be more bumps in the road. I'm sure the first payroll won't be the, be the only one, um, but just, yeah. yeah, really looking forward to being in, in deeper partnership, I think. Thank you. Wonderful. All right, uh, item F2, approval of the amendment to the AHS 403B plan. Uh, Tony Redmond. Yeah, thank you, Trustee Avaletta. Um, as part of the affiliation agreement between Oakcare Medical Group and what was Alameda Health Partners and now is East Bay Medical Group, an agreement was made uh, to improve the benefits for the employees uh, that were hired on or after July the 1st of 2020. Uh, the previous threshold for matching in the 403B plan uh, was to work at 0.75 FTE. Uh, part of the agreement with Oakcare Medical Group was that benefit would be expanded to employees who were 0.6 FTE or above. Uh, that means that um, obviously the new employees coming in uh, are subject to a, a richer benefit than those already employed by uh, Almeda, what was Almeda Health Partners and is now East Bay Medical Group. There are 20 uh, employees who fall into that category, meaning there'll be an additional cost uh, to East Bay Medical Group of $390,000 a year. Uh, and we recommend that you accept uh, this change to the 403B plan that expands um, matching for people at 0.6 and above hired after July the 1st of 2020. Um, and it's part of the affiliation agreement that was negotiated between uh, AHP and OCAM Medical Group, and as such, it's something that uh, we would be required to do in terms of making the change. Happy to ask, answer any questions about the change or the uh, amendment. Questions about this amendment? So I think it's kind of clear, but these uh, employees fall outside a defined benefit retirement plan. Uh, they do. Um, AHP, uh, what was AHP is now East Bay Medical Group, uh, is eligible for the 403, 403B plan, which we match, or, um, or East Bay Medical Group matches, and they're eligible to defer funds into the 457 plan. Uh, but there is no defined pension plan in, in East Bay Medical Group. Uh, they have two deferral plans, and we match into one of them up to uh, $19,500. Other questions? Anyone want to give a motion? So moved. Second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Any abstain? Opposed? All right, motion carries. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, approval of a resolution approving 401H account pursuant to section 31592. Mike Moy. So, uh, Trustee Abelotta, if we could just hold on a minute. If anyone's in direct communication with uh, Trustee Bouquet, you know, let him know that oh. he can return. Ah, oh, there he is. Okay. Back. All right. Okay. Uh, there is a memo in the packet. This is an annual event. This is the funding of the retiree health benefits uh, through ASERA. Um, basically, you know, the process is that a number is determined. Uh, then ASERA notifies each of the plan participants of the amount that they are required to set aside to cover the benefits. Um, and so um, I've been here five years. This is the fifth time that we've done it. Happy to answer any questions you may have. I would move the motion. Second. Was that Trustee DeVries with the second? 
Uh, I think Ross beat me to it. Okay. No, it's your turn, bro. You take it. Let's see Reese with the second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 All right. Any opposer? Abstain. All okay. Of, I, don't know. I think I missed part of the discussion, so I'll abstain. Was that okay? Necessary? All right. Fair enough. Trustee Bouquet abstains. Uh, motion carries. Okay. Um, item F5 is a report on the status of the proposed response to the grand jury. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. I skipped F4. Approval of the revised conflict of interest code and form 700 policy. Mike, back to you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, let's try this. Okay, very well. Can everyone uh, see that which is on the screen at this point? Yeah. Okay, and can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Yes. Very good. Very good. So I won't take too much time with this. This was also in the June packet, um, and we didn't get a chance to get to it. Essentially, there's uh, two policies which have been revised, which uh, cover the entire organization, including the uh, board of trustees, and I think they both have direct infra uh, interest uh, for the members of the board. Uh, one is the conflict of interest policy, which covers a variety of issues related to conflicts of interest. The second is the uh, Form 700 policy. Excuse me. Uh, that basically uh, deals with our uh, the technical requirements, you know, for filing the uh, financial uh, disclosure statement, uh, which is applicable to all of the trustees and certain members of the organization. Both of these uh, were revised uh, as of June uh, 2020. Uh, primarily, the changes uh, to them incorporate, you know, some small changes to the law. For example, you know, the uh, maximum amount that can be received uh, under the gifts uh, from a interested party, you know, typically is adjusted uh, every year or every other year. So that amount has gone uh, from $490 to $500. So things like that uh, are the primary uh, changes that were incorporated uh, in these new policies. Uh, with regard to the Form 700 policy, clarified a little bit of the technical and administrative guidance, uh, which is provided there in terms of uh, actually completing uh, uh, the form. We also uh, took the opportunity to update uh, the list of officials within the organization who are subject uh, to the filing requirement. And I would note that uh, one piece of feedback, you know, indicated that in going over the list, we had uh, left out a position that should be included. Um, even though the San Leandro Hospital medical staff has been incorporated with the Alameda Health System medical staff, uh, there is a leadership position there which reports to the board. So uh, based upon uh, feedback we receive, we'll modify the draft that you review to include uh, that position. Uh, and if there are any other positions that anybody noted that sh uh, were not included uh, within the policy they feel should be included, uh, you know, happy to, to hear those suggestions or those recommendations, uh, and we can make sure that they are added as appropriate. I'll give you a moment to think about that a little bit more. Um, so as I point out here, you know, this, uh, the Form 700 policy really is designed to, to complement the conflict of interest code. Um, and, you know, I've just listed here, you know, a couple of, you know, what I think are sort of the big issues, you know, from the conflict of interest code. Uh, I'll take these a little bit out of order uh, because, again, I don't think it's necessary to go through a detailed discussion of each of them. Um, but, you know, we have taken the effort, you know, within the code in particular 
uh, the areas of gifts and other perks of the office, you know, lay out what the rules are, you know, for each of you with regard to those issues. And, you know, I think that the general or an easy rubric to follow, you know, here is the question of, you know, whether or not, you know, you're receiving anything that might be considered a benefit. Uh, and if you're receiving such a benefit, you know, is there any relationship, you know, between the person who's offering that benefit and AHS? You know, are they a vendor of AHS or some other sort of business partner? You know, generally speaking, if it's not something of value, meaning more than $50, or if there's no business relationship with AHS, it typically is not going to, you know, uh, present an issue which is problematic. So, uh, again, you know, there's all kinds of situations which may come up, uh, which can be uh, a bit challenging, but we have made an effort, you know, within the policies to sort of walk through, you know, how those issues might be addressed. The other issue uh, that I would uh, highlight is Government Code Section 1090 because I think this is of particular importance. And essentially, this basically is the uh, provision which covers uh, conflicts of interest, you know, in contracting by the organization. 1090 is significant in that, you know, the primary um, required corrective action or penalty for violating 1090 is basically voiding a, a contract that has been entered into and the forfeiture, you know, of any benefits received under that contract. So, for example, were we to enter into a contract, you know, with a vendor and it turns out that there's been a violation of Government Code Section 1090, it would be illegal for us to pay that vendor, for, you know, even though that vendor has done work for us. So it has significant or the potential for significant, you know, repercussions. And again, I think it's important, you know, to understand that if we are looking at a contract, you know, where there is a... <clears throat> excuse me, a financial interest, you know, for anybody who is within this decision-making chain of command, then Government Code Section 1090 applies, and we need to be particularly careful about how we go about engaging in that work and also coming up with it, whatever agreements or contracts uh, will follow it. What's of particular importance is if there is a conflict between a member of the Board of Trustees and a vendor under Government Code Section 1090, we are absolutely precluded from entering into a contract with that vendor. You know, and it's a situation where either the, the trustee has to resign from the board or we have to forego entering into the contract. There is one notable exception, and we just had a practical demonstration of that exception, is that where a member of the medical staff is serving on the governing board. There is an exception, you know, which allows the board uh, to actually enter, <clears throat> enter into a contract which uh, might otherwise present a conflict of interest, you know, for that member of the medical staff who serves on the board. As long as they recuse themselves from the consideration of the matter and the approval of the contract, then there is no 1090 violation. But this is significant. We've had a couple of issues that we've had to deal with over it, and I just, you know, want it to be clearly understood by each member of the Board of Trustees that if this issue does arise, that it can have significant consequences for the organization. The last uh, couple of things I want to talk about, I think, you know, the more, um, you know, perhaps important and, and some, you know, times more difficult to deal with, and that concerns, you know, conflicts of interest which arise out of organizational conflicts or incompatible offices. So, you know, first, I, you know, I will say that uh, incompatible offices is a term of art. There is a specific type of conflict of interest which, you know, uh, relates to the fact that someone holds two positions which are defined by laws being incompatible. Generally speaking, the primary um, 
standard that you're talking about is that if one board, you know, basically has a subordinate relationship to another board, that would create a situation of uh, someone basically uh, holding incompatible offices if they were to serve on both boards. Beyond that, though, you know, there is the notion of conflicts which arise, you know, between responsibilities to one organization and responsibilities, you know, to this board. And understand that, you know, the entire rubric of conflict of interest principles and laws is really to design, you know, design to ensure two things. One is that the decisions are being made uh, based upon the best interests of Alameda Health System and no other party. And two, that there is the clearly the appearance or avoiding the appearance that decisions are being made, you know, on any other basis. And, you know, these are responsible, you know, important responsibilities. You know, I think they go, you know, to the very, you know, heart of the board's fiduciary responsibilities to act in the best interests of the organization. And so I think it's important that we do take these, you know, responsibilities seriously, even though sometimes they arise in circumstances, you know, that may not, you know, be so obvious. And part of my job is to, you know, to call these situations out, you know, from time to time. And we have had several situations, you know, over the course of the past couple of years, which have been problematic. You know, a situation, you know, where a trustee may be, you know, promoting an interest, you know, to the organization in which, you know, they have some interest in. Whether, you know, even though it may not be a direct financial interest, it raises the question or the issue of whether or not there's the appearance of a conflict of interest. You know, another example, you know, is where, you know, representations or presentations are being made to the board, you know, that basically personally benefit the person making the presentation. That's inappropriate. You know, uh, people have access to the board, you know, to conduct business of the board, not their own personal business. And to the extent that those things happen, and, you know, quite frankly, even more, um, you know, concerning, you know, if that is, you know, either promoted or assisted by other trustees, that's problematic for the board, you know, because that is the type of conflict, you know, which these laws are designed, you know, to present, uh, to prevent from happening in the first instance. So I think it's important, uh, and then the last point, you know, that I would make in this is that serving on this board is a little bit different, you know, uh, than some of the other public agency, you know, you know, situations, you know, where you're dealing with elected officials. Again, service on this board is based upon acting as a fiduciary of Alameda Health System, and, you know, it doesn't matter what other relationships there are. You know, members of this board are not there to represent a group or to, you know, uh, represent a constituency. They're here to make decisions that benefit Alameda Health System. The fact that they come from places we know where, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, from places or background, which allows, you know, different, you know, insight or perspective on the issues uh, that, you know, uh, Alameda Health System is facing, that is an important thing. And that goes into the, the entire process, you know, who was selected, you know, to serve on the board because they bring those outside perspectives, you know, those, you know, special, you know, insights based upon their experience. But in making decisions, you know, it's important that those decisions must be made, you know, in the context of what is in the best interest of Alameda Health System and not necessarily some other constituency or group, you know, that, you know, uh, there may be a relationship with. And again, you know, part of, you know, what 
I think part of my responsibility is to help you know you know the board understand that, but I think each trustee has an individual responsibility to consider that you know as they're going about conducting business you know with the board, and you know if there's ever a question you know I think you know it's it's important to get an answer to the question or have that clarified you know before we get into a problem or a situation may be an issue, and from time to time understand that you know it's incumbent upon me to raise the question or address the issue. Uh, at the end of the day, I don't make these decisions you know at the end of the day I have to rely upon each of you as trustees or collectively as a board uh, in deciding you know how you're going to deal with the issue but I think you know I hope you will understand that if it's a situation which I think might present a problem or issue you know I it is incumbent upon me to raise it and make sure that everyone is comfortable that you know we are in fact you know acting not only in accordance with the actual requirements of the various ethics statute but also in accordance with the spirit of them as well too. So that uh, those were the points I wanted to cover in the addendum. I have some more specific information about um, the um, uh, you know the uh, uh, you know each of the statutes which is addressed you know under the conflict of interest policy. I'm happy to answer any questions you have about that, but I did not think it was necessary for me to go through all that as part of this presentation. Thank you, Michael. I just want to reiterate again, best governance practice is fiduciary responsibility, deep alignment to the mission, uh, uh, you know, and to the community that we've been sworn to um, care, heal for, and for quality of care, all, all of those. So, yeah, and to keep all of those in mind. Yeah, Mike, I appreciate uh report i would just add this it's a there's an element of culture about this that we need to continue to work on we need to have a uh, an allowance for you to speak to to uh, uh situations that you see and as well as other trustees um and i think uh, you frame that well that it's more of a question that's probably a good way to get into the conversation as opposed to uh you know on a accusation or an attack from uh, one trustee to another or or to a speaker um uh, but i think it's important that we actually even though it's awkward sometimes um i mean i i i'm accountable to a board of directors we've had a few of these situations i'd rather that it not be in the room when it is but it's healthy organizations actually uh confront uh and mitigate these uh potential conflict situations so I appreciate the way you frame that. Yeah, and you know, I'll thank you for saying that, you know, Trustee Shaquan. And I, you know, I think it's important to understand, you know, this is about protecting the organization and also protecting each of you, you know, in your individual roles as well, too. And you know, I approach these things, you know, much more, much more from the standpoint of, um, you know, for you know, for lack of better, the devil's advocate to help, you know, basically sort of tease out all of the the facts all of the perceptions that may you know arise in one of these situations you know not because i believe that you know it's a problematic situation but because part of my job is to anticipate you know what some of those perceptions might be what sort of you know some of those insights might be and you know basically lay them out for you and like i say at the end of the day you know it's going to be up to you know individual trustees 
you know, and the board as a whole to decide how you're going to, you know, to deal with this. You know, I can, you know, I can advise, I can advise strongly, I can, you know, advise strongly while pounding on the table, but at the end of the day, it's not my decision to make, so. So I appreciate that, and you know, I again, I we've had some you know situations and issues uh, that we've had to deal with, um, but as the organization becomes more complex, you know, we just have you know so many different things that we do that overlap. Um, it just oftentimes you know there's more of the likelihood that these situations will come up, but you know I think we can deal with them. Yeah, thank you. Any other questions or comments on this? It's a really important topic. I think we all, all of us that are here are passionate about what we do. We have roles that may overlap and, and it's just, I know we're always thinking about the different hats that we wear and I think that brings richness to the board. Um, and at the same time, that makes us have to be that much more vigilant um, about where there could be um, actual or perceived conflict. So thank you for, um, for raising this and and, um, and revising this um, the code and the policy and so if there's no other questions do I have a motion? I would move the uh, the, the the action item. Second. Opposed in favor. Aye. 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 Opposed or abstain. Wonderful motion carries unanimously. Thank you, Mike. That was helpful. Oh, you're up again. Um, status of proposed response to the grand jury report. Uh, I think that the plan is that we would uh, defer this item to the retreat discussion tomorrow, which is sort of focused on uh, some of the broader financial and governance issues because it fits right in there. Um, Hoping you'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was happy to be able to say that as well too. So so we can this will be deferred to tomorrow, and I'll do that presentation then. Fantastic. All right. Um, then we have an action item, Luis, about uh, Bogart construction um, contract. And know. yes, and so uh, one other change. So this is uh, will be removed from the agenda. This was not forwarded by the finance committee and should not have appeared on this agenda. Okay, thank you. That's, that was the point that uh, Trustee Shaquan had made during his finance committee report. Oh, okay, sorry, I really missed that. Okay, thank you so much. Um, okay, great, so we've got uh, our written reports um, from staff. Were there any questions on, on the CFO report? And, and certainly, Kim, if you wanted to, I know you spoke a little bit during uh, Trustee Shaquan's update, but was there anything that you wanted to add here? Unless there's uh, more questions, I, I pretty much just kind of gave the highlights for the month of May. Yeah, thank you. All right, any questions on the CFO report, the COO report, uh, the Epic Go Live update, um, the public affairs report, or the issues tracking log? All right. Great. Um, it looks like we are at that point um, of needing to go into closed session. So can we get the statement from you, Mike? Yes. Board will now meet in closed session uh, for two, excuse me, three items as set forth in the agenda, discussion of labor relations, potential litigation, and a performance evaluation. Great. So. Now agenda closed session.